And I'd like to uh, read their names and have them stand so we can uh, give them a round of applause and congratulations for uh, graduating from high school. I'll bet when you began in kindergarten 13 years ago, you never thought you'd make it. But uh, sure enough, here you are today looking for jobs. Uh, Ed Aarons. Tony Gustafson, or excuse me, Tori Gustafson, Rudy Oliver, Dave Strau, Matt Kendrick, Clark Smith, Amy Allen, Sherry Amon, Connie Jackson, Carrie Reed, Helen DeVos, Charlene Seideman, Christine Steckler, and uh, Jill Tizaker, or Tizaker, excuse me, are you here? Stand up so we can uh, see you. Good. called me this morning and uh, told me that Clark was in the hospital. He has an infection uh, on his face, a herpes infection, and they're concerned that it might spread to his eyes and to his right ear, in which case he would lose the hearing of his right ear and might lose his eye. And uh, as you know, Clark's uh, now at the University of Heidelberg working on a Ph.D. and studying hard, and he's very fatigued, and apparently this infection just uh, caught up with him. So we need to uh, we need to continue to pray for Clark and for Ann in this uh, in this difficult situation. Uh, as we were talking, Ann said, "Do you have a a verse of scripture, something that would encourage us?" And uh, the the passage that came to mind is Psalm ninety four seventeen. David said, "Unless the Lord had been my strength, my soul had almost dwelt in silence." When I said, my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, holds me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, your comforts delight my soul. I've always liked that passage. I I remind myself of that word of encouragement whenever I need comfort, and I particularly appreciate the fact that the uh, noun comforts is plural in that psalm. Your comforts. Delight my soul. I remember reading it once and being reminded of my childhood. I, well, I grew up in Texas, as you know, and uh, I used to sleep. Is this on, George? I have to stick with this one. I can't wander. Oops. I may not even be able to speak. Now, where was I? Oh, I grew up in Texas. And. Uh, I, uh, I used to sleep out on the porch. We had a screened-in porch with canvas uh, 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 covers on the outside. And, and uh, it gets uh, cold in the wintertime in Texas, and I used to pile on the covers. And my mother would always come out about uh, 10 o'clock or so after I was in bed, and she would say, uh, Son, do you, do you need another, another comfort? Uh, perhaps you need two comforts. And I used to always ask for two or three comforts because I knew that I needed, uh, I would need them in, in the night when it got really cold. I always thought of that verse, or always thought of that incident when I read that verse. Your comforts delight my soul. He doesn't uh, minimally comfort us. He lavishes comfort upon us. Now, sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need to be afflicted because we're too comfortable and uh, we're very complacent. And, and we're not walking with God because we feel that we have it all together and we don't need him. But there are other times that we need comfort. Now, perhaps you feel that way this morning. Uh, you're not feeling very comfortable. 
and uh, you're here in some sort of distress, perhaps you're struggling in your marriage, or you're concerned about some business decision you have to make this week, or uh, your business is, uh, uh, is in trouble and you need comfort. Well, what I would like to do this morning is, is uh, provide some comfort, some of God's comforts, from, uh, from Scripture. Will you turn with me to the 107th Psalm, one of the most comforting psalms I know. Remarkable psalm, wonderful psalm. If, uh, if it were not in the Bible, literary critics would acclaim this psalm as a literary masterpiece. It's like uh, Virgil's Aeneid or uh, uh, some of the great writings from the past. Marvelous piece of literature, but largely overlooked. Uh, it's very easy to outline the, the psalm. The uh, structure of the psalm is apparent the first time you read it. The psalmist begins with a, a prologue in which he states the theme of the psalm. The, the theme of the psalm is simply that God loves you. He loves you very much. He, he cares about you a lot. That's the theme. And then he amplifies upon the theme in four short stories or vignettes, little pictures that, that follow, descriptions of the ways in which God loves us. And uh, then he closes with an epilogue in which he summarizes the theme of, of the book and, and calls upon us to give praise for God's love. Now let's look at the prologue or the introduction, the first three verses, Psalm 107, verses 1, 2, and 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. This is a call to give thanks because of God's goodness, his goodness is revealed in the fact that he loves us very much. And his love is shown by, uh, by two great actions. He, he's redeemed us, he's bought us out, and he's brought us in. He's brought us to himself. There are a lot of people that think this psalm belongs in the uh, post-exilic period. That is, after the return from, uh, from Babylon to Palestine. And that those who are gathered from the east and the west and the north and the south are the repatriated Jews of that period. But for myself, I don't think so. I think this is simply a description of God's uh, penchant, his tendency to, to want to gather everyone in. He just loves people. And he wants to draw them to himself, wherever they are, red, yellow, black, white, they are precious in his sight wants to throw his arms around them and make them a, a part of the family, include them in. And that's what the psalm is talking about. God's good. He loves us. He's redeemed us. He's bought us out, and he wants to include us in. That's the gist of, of verses 1 uh, through 3. Now, he, he begins by reminding us that God is good. Uh, we, we are inclined, at least uh, those of us that speak English, are inclined to use good in a relative sense, because we've never seen anything that's absolutely good. We've never met anyone who's perfectly good, so we tend to relativize it. And even when we talk about someone being a good person, we're not thinking in absolute terms because we know that they're a mixture of, of good and bad, like the little girl who had a curl in her, on her forehead who, when she was good, was very, very good, and when she was bad, was horrid. 
That's, that's the way we tend to look at people. But still, we talk about good old boys and so-and-so is a good person. And we're not, we're not thinking absolutely. Uh, my wife, is uh, Carolyn, is on to this now. When I tell her we're going fishing in a certain place back in the hills and it's a, the road is good into that place, she doesn't believe me anymore. <laughs> My, my concept of a good road is one that's passable. You can get there and you can get back. I, we went into Deadwood Reservoir, or tried to go into Deadwood Reservoir some uh, years ago through the southern route. And uh, as you know, the road is good up to a point. And uh, we got into one, into one of those stretches of that road where it's a little more than one lane wide and there's sheer drops right off into the creek. And Carolyn turned as white as this sheet of paper and she said, David... This is not a good road. <clears throat> but uh, when, when, we, uh, when we talk about God's goodness, we're talking about it in an absolute sense. God is good. He's absolutely good. There's no mixture of good and evil. There's no badness in God. Uh, even, even Jesus uh, responded once to the uh, in a corrective way to the Pharisees who were confused about this matter of, of his goodness and God's goodness. Uh, they started to ask him a question. One of the Pharisees did, and he said, Good teacher. And Jesus interrupted him. He said, Whoop, wait a minute. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, many people read that, or some people read that, and think that Jesus is disclaiming deity. He's saying... Uh, don't don't call me good teacher because only God is good and I'm not God so you shouldn't refer to me as a good teacher he's, but no that's not what he's doing you see he's correcting the tendency that we all have to use that word in an absolute in a relative sense when it when it really indicates with reference to God absolute total perfection in his goodness now we need to realize that God's always good, even when things uh, turn sour for us, even when the world looks dark and grim and, and dreary and, and our marriages aren't working well and our children are not responding well and we feel that God has abandoned us and forgotten us. And it's, not, it's not true. It's not true. He's good. He's good. And his goodness has shown that he keeps on loving us. You see how the psalmist puts it? His love endures forever. Now, he's not talking about endurance in time, per se. He's talking about endurance through all the circumstances of life. He never stops loving us. We're never too far gone. We're never too far out. We never out-sin the love of God. He always loves us. Uh, if you have a New American Standard Bible, this, the, the word that, that's found in the text here is translated loving-kindness. If you have a King James, it's translated mercy, which may uh, be confusing to you. It's a very difficult term to define. It was used in the ancient world for uh, contractual relationships that were more than, than, than mere legal contracts. The word has in it not only the idea of loyalty to another person, but affection. Uh, some marriages, for example, uh, are characterized by loyalty. The, Partners in the relationship would never think of being unfaithful to each other. They're very correct in the relationship, but they're not close. There's no, there's no affection. There's no intimacy. They're just legally correct. But you see, God is more than legally correct. He not only is loyal and faithful, but he's also affectionate, warmly affectionate and kind 
and loving toward us. And all of that is signified by the, by the word that's translated here. His love endures forever. His love is, is revealed according to the psalmist in two ways. One, he redeemed us from the hand of the foe. Another interesting word. Uh, so many words in, in the Hebrew language are pregnant. They're just freighted with meaning and very colorful. This is one of those, those words. It, it's used throughout the uh, ancient world, not just in the Old Testament, but throughout the ancient world, for uh, the act of purchasing back or buying back or, or paying a price for a relative who gets himself in trouble. It's used in Leviticus 25 for a man who sells himself into slavery and he gets into trouble financially, and he has to become someone's slave. He indentures himself to someone else to pay back the debt, and uh, his brother goes over and buys him back. That's the idea of the word. It, it, you've heard of the concept of a kinsman redeemer. This is the word. A, a kinsman, a family member, a father or a brother or a sister who bails you out of some mess that you've gotten yourself into. And implicit in the term is the idea of paying a price. It costs. It, it's costly. Which gives us a, a, a foreview of the great and terrible price that God had to pay for the mess that we had gotten ourselves into because of our sin. He redeems us. He buys us out of our sin. And he gathers us in. Oh, what a great picture of being included in. That's what love is. It's excluding, excluding no one because they don't look right or they don't behave properly or because they're not dressed the right way or they don't have the right kind of cultural background or education or training. Love doesn't exclude on any of those bases. Love just includes in, brings us in. And that's what the psalmist wants us to know. Let's give thanks because of God's goodness. He loves us. And his love is shown by his great redemptive act in buying us out and bringing us in. And then he amplifies upon this idea of God's love through a, a series of four little pictures, little short stories, people that get themselves into jams of various types and need to be bought out and brung in. Brought in, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I've been up in the hills too long. <laughs> the first of these, in fact, each one of them uh, is based on the same pattern. Uh, there is first a, a description of the peril in which people find themselves, and then they pray, they call for help, and God responds. He comes to their rescue. He's like the, these search and rescue units that go out and find you when you get yourself in trouble. And then there is a call for praise because we've been rescued. In each case, the story follows that same format. Now, uh, follow along with me, beginning with verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Uh, this is a description, I think, of, of something that happened historically in, in the uh, in Israel's uh, experience, it's, a, it's based on fact, but it's also a figure. It's a picture of men and women wandering through life, looking for a, for a city. Uh, some years ago, I read uh, George MacDonald's little book, Fantasties. It's a description of a young man's pilgrimage through life. 
And uh, the name that McDonald gives to him is anodos, which is the Greek word for without a way. And so, it was so descriptive and analytical, I, I think, of, of life and the way people wander about in life trying to find some source of satisfaction. But like uh, Eric Clapton and, uh, and Starman and others, they can't get no satisfaction. They can't find it. They can't find a, a city. It's a beautiful picture, I think. Again, it's a symbol of, uh, of security. Now, we wouldn't use that symbol today because our cities are anything but places of security. They're places of violence and crime in general. But in the ancient world, cities were places that you could run to and find refuge, and there's fellowship there. It was frightening to travel across country. People didn't live out in the open, uh, out in the fields, because they were in danger from, uh, from raiders and brigands and uh, thieves, murderers. And so they'd, they would cluster around the cities. It was a, it's a picture, you see, of, of security, people wanting a place where they can be included in and loved and wanted and cared for, see? Uh, Larry of Larry, Daryl, and his other brother, Daryl Fame, says that if you love someone, you will eat bees and gargle dirt for them. <clears throat> That's what we're looking for. We want someone that will gargle dirt for us, someone that will love us just the way we are and care for us. We're looking for a city, you see, where we can settle down and rest and relax and feel secure. That's why men and, and women join uh, various social groups. That's why they join the courthouse and the park center and other places. It's not just for the recreational benefits and the, and the facilities, the athletic facilities, is because they want something more. They want a social setting. They want social security, not the kind that you get at, at age 65, but the security that comes from being in a place where you're known and loved and accepted and, and included in. They're looking for a city. See? They wander through life hungry and thirsty, not finding what they're looking for. Well, the psalmist says that when they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, God delivers them in their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could, where they could settle down. No more wandering. They could go straight to the city and find security. Now, in the New Testament, this concept of a city is picked up and amplified in the city according to the writer of Hebrews, is, is the church, which he calls Zion, or Jerusalem. And in Revelation, the picture is expanded of a, of a, a city coming down from heaven, adorned for God as a, as a bride. It's a picture of the church itself. I, for myself, I don't think it's a picture of heaven, though the city would be taken back up to heaven and uh, would be eternally with God. But the city itself is the church. And really, that's what people are looking for. Not this church, necessarily. But a body of people surrounding our Lord Jesus, basing their lives upon him, included in to a relationship with him where they're loved and accepted and they're secure. And what the psalmist says is that really that's what we're looking for. That's what Abraham was looking for. The writer of Hebrews says he wasn't looking for a city that, that was built by human hands. He, he, he kept looking for something more. There was another city, an eternal city, a lasting city. Now, those, he says, who have been led to that city and can settle down uh, there, are, they're, they're told to give thanks. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love 
and his wonderful deeds for man. The word for wonderful deeds is the Hebrew word for miracles. That's one of the great miracles that God does. He brings us in. He includes us in, just as we are. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Now, he uses a different word here for thirsty than he uses back in verse uh, verse 5. In verse 5, the word simply means thirsty, like our word. Uh, the word that, that's used in, uh, in verse 9 means parched or desiccated, without hope. Uh, my my uh, Carolyn has a very green thumb, and we have green plants all over our house, and and sometimes they they look like they're going to uh, they're going to die. And I point that out to her. I say that it's it's hopeless. It's lost. She's not. No, it's not. You know, and she gives it a little tender love and care, and feeds it, and takes care of. It. Pretty soon, it's all green again. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at a pot out in our backyard or in our garage. Uh, we were given a plant for Christmas, and after it bloomed. I just took it outside in the garage and put it on top of the refrigerator, and now that it's this ugly brown-looking thing, and it's all—it's obviously dead. And there's no hope for it. Carolyn looked at it and said, "Well, I can, you know, nothing I can do with that thing." Well, that's—that's that's the idea. It's behind this word. And and some of you possibly feel that way this morning. You're you're parched beyond hope. You're desperate. You're you're thirsty, and there seems to be no hope. Well, the psalmist says, "He satisfies the parched." He fills the hungry with good things. No one's hopeless. No one's beyond help. Now, uh, the second picture in, in verse 10, uh, a different picture. It's uh, uh, the, the scene shifts from a wandering, weary traveler to uh, an, an enslaved prisoner. Some sat in darkness in the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains. For they had rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled, and there was no one to help. Now, again, there's some historical background for this passage. I'm sure he may be referring to those times in Israel's history when they rebelled against the law of God and he gave them over to their, to their captors. But uh, he's really describing, again, in, in, in a symbolic way, the experience of so many of us. This is someone who's in deep, deep depression because of sin or who is enslaved in some habit, some habitual action from which you cannot be freed because of sin. Now, depression is not always caused by sin. There are physical and chemical causes for it, as you know, but, but sometimes depression is caused by sin. And this is what the psalmist is talking about here those black moods that we get into because we have found God's will to be onerous and hard and difficult. The word for rebel here has the idea of bitterness in, in, in it. We just don't want to respond to some, something that God has asked us to do out of his concern for us, out of his love for us. We don't want to do it. So we resist it. And we get depressed. And we become enslaved. I know what that's like. And so do you. Uh, I, someone did something to me last week, and I, it made me real mad. I, I don't get mad very often, but that really made me mad. And there's nothing quite as satisfying as a good mad. You know, you, <laughs> it just makes you feel wholesome. You know, when you get, get really mad, and and I just stayed mad. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I stayed mad for two days, uh, and and then I got depressed. I got very depressed because that's what anger will do to you. 
That's what sin will do to you. Uh, there are other sins that enslave us. We start out doing them because they're, uh, they're fun. They're pleasant. Let's don't kid ourselves. Sin is very pleasant. That's why we get into it. If it weren't, we wouldn't sin. We'd avoid it. And uh, then we find ourselves enslaved. That's, what's, that's what illicit sex will do to you. It seems so good in the beginning. But uh, the more you get into it, the less you get out of it. But you discover you can't get out of it. You're caught. You're trapped. And uh, there's, a, there's a momentary uh, uh, enjoyment of the thing, but, but after a bit there's that dull ache and the, and the emptiness and the, and the feeling that there must be something more than, than this. And We know what it's, what it's like. There, he describes it as being in iron chains, unbreakable chains. Iron is one of the hardest substances known then. Uh, if, if he were writing today, he would probably describe case-hardened steel or something of that nature. But what he's trying to depict here is an unbreakable habit. Uh, they suffered in iron chains because of their rebellion. So God subjected them to bitter labor. God will give us what we want. You know, if we insist on it, he, he lets us have it. He doesn't want us to do it because he knows that, that it will hurt us, but if we want it, he'll, he'll let us have it. And the result is that we're subjected to labor. And when God turns us over, no one can help us. Do, do you see that? He subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. No one can help us when God afflicts us. Not our favorite guru or, or psychologist or psychiatrist or anyone else, no matter how helpful they normally may be. When God lets us have our way, when he afflicts us, no one can help us except God. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. See, you're never so far gone that you can't call out to the Lord. As C.S. Lewis puts it, down through the ages when men needed help, they might cry out, uh, Billy Bud, help me, and nothing much happens. Or if they need wisdom, they might cry out, William Shakespeare, help me, and nothing much happens. But he says, for 1,900 years, whenever men and women have cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, something happens. always happens. And that's what he describes here. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the deepest gloom and broke away their chains. No habit, too binding, you see. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. Here's that theme song again. His enduring love and his wonderful deeds for men. His miraculous works. For he breaks down the gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. As Charles Wesley put it, describing his own experience, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Uh, then there is another group described here in verses 17 through 22. Some became fools through their rebellious ways. The word for fools suggests some kind of irrational uh, activity. They became neurotic, psychotic. They became uh, confused in their thinking and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Not only can, uh, 
can sin enslave us, but sin can also make us sick, emotionally sick or physically sick. Now, obviously, not all emotional sickness can be explained in terms of sin. We would never want anyone to think that. Uh, just as no, as you can't explain all physical sickness by sin, except that in general, sin in the world produces sickness, both physical and emotional, in the world. But there are some times that we can attribute emotional disturbances and physical sickness to sin. The New Testament teaches us that very clearly. And that's what we see here. They became foolish, irrational. They did strange, bizarre, weird things because of their rebellion. And they suffered affliction, a physical affliction is the idea here, because of their iniquities. They nearly died. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them. It's always the word that heals as we meditate upon it and think about it and ponder it. And we read about God's love and his care, the price he paid for our sin, the completeness of his forgiveness. The fact that his arms are underneath, supporting and encouraging and lifting. Uh, those are the things from his word that begin to heal us. It may take time. Just as it may take time for our bodies to heal if they're, if they're injured. But uh, he will send forth his word and heal them. He rescues them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his, his miracles again. Another manifestation of his miracle working power. Let them sacrifice, thank offerings, and tell of his works with songs of joy. Your joy comes back after a time of sickness and sorrow. And then in verses 23 through uh, 32, the final picture is that of a storm-tossed uh, sailor. Others went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his miracle, his wonderful deeds in the, in, in the deep. That's the word for miracles again. And then he uh, explains what those miracles are. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. His miracle working power is seen in, in the storms which he sends upon, upon the merchants. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Uh, sailing in those days was hazardous duty. It wasn't safe like it is today. Anytime you, uh, you left uh, the, sh the shore, there was always the, the possibility of shipwreck. And they knew it. Paul himself had been shipwrecked a number of times. They were familiar with that sort of thing. And uh, uh, they were afraid any time they pushed off from shore. They were fearful. Now, I don't know too many mariners here today, but a lot of you men and women are involved in, in business enterprises of various types, and you find them just as hazardous. You never know what's going to happen. And some of you may be uh, going into bankruptcy right now. The bank may be foreclosing on you. Or you've made some decision... Uh, which was a good decision, but through no fault of your own, you're losing your company or you're losing a great deal of money. Those are experiences that, that all of you from time to time have to, have to face. And there are times when you, like these mariners, or mariners are, are at, at your wit's end. Your skill is useless. There's no way out. Well, the psalmist says that he's the one who still the waves to a whisper. Verse 28. 
Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. He guided them to their desired haven. Interesting, isn't it, that God not only stirs up the tempest, according to verse 25, but he stills the storm to a whisper. Great uh, uh, word about God's providence and his control of all the affairs of life, even your business interests and mine. He is in control. And uh, when these mariners cried out, they were guided to their desired haven. Now, we don't know if they lost their ships or not. Perhaps their ships were, were wrecked and their cargoes were lost, but they themselves arrived safely. And so again, the call to give praise. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. Even when the ship goes down, he loves us. And his wonderful deeds for men, let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. And do you see what he's done? He's brought together four, uh, four pictures, four stories about people that have been redeemed. They've been brought out. And they've been brought in. They're brought to a city. Or they're brought to a point of satisfaction. They're brought to the Lord himself. They're brought to their desired haven. It's an indication, as a psalmist wants us to understand, of God's goodness and his love for us. Now the epilogue follows in verses 33 uh, to 42. He turns rivers into a desert. Flowing springs into thirsty ground and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who live there. He turns the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. There he brings the hungry to live and they found a city where they can settle down. They sow fields and plant vineyards that yield a fruitful harvest. He blesses them and their numbers greatly increase. And he does not let their herds diminish. Then their numbers decrease. That is, those that are described earlier as the hungry, that he's brought into a place to live. Then their numbers decrease, and they're humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles makes them wander in a trackless waste. But he lifts the needy out of their affliction and increases their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths. Now this, uh, this uh, epilogue has been a puzzlement to, uh, uh, to the, or was a, a puzzle to the rabbis. They couldn't understand what, what the psalmist was talking about here. And uh, perhaps I don't have it straight myself, but I think in reading through this passage a number of times, that this is what the Lord is saying. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that all the verbs are translated in the present tense, and I think we must do that. What he's saying is this. People in this world have a tendency to uh, take good things for granted. They'll go through life and never give God the time of day, as long as things are going well. But adversity has a way of, of showing us that we simply don't have what it takes to make life work. That's what he means by turning the fruitful land into a, into a desert, flowing springs into a thirsty ground because of the wickedness of those who live here. 
Adversity has a way of getting our attention, pulling us up short, making us realize that we don't have what it takes, that we need God to live life as God intended us to live it. We need God to be real men and real women. A number of years ago, I uh, met a young missionary couple from, uh, who were going out with overseas crusades to um, uh, Taiwan. And uh, they were carrying a small child in their, in their hands. And I looked at the little boy and started to say something. And then I realized the, little, the, the child had Down syndrome. He was a mongoloid. And I didn't quite know how to react. I, uh, I said, oh, I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, no. He said, don't be sorry. He said, we love Andrew. We'll always love him. But more importantly, we named him Andrew because he brought us to the Lord. Andrew, as you know, was the disciple who was always bringing people to Christ. And uh, so they named him Andrew for that reason. It seems they were riding high. They were making money. They were living for things. That's all that mattered. And uh, Andrew brought him up short. Now, that's what happens. It's not that God afflicts little children with Down syndrome. Not at all. That comes from the enemy, the evil one. But God guides that process. It all happens under his providence. He's sovereign. He rules. Nothing happens without his being aware of it and without his permitting it for some reason. And that's why he will permit rivers to turn into desert and flowing springs into thirsty ground to get our attention, to show us how hungry we really are. And then when we turn to him, we find that the parched ground turns into a, to a flowing spring. And we find a city where we can settle down. But the interesting thing is that the process doesn't stop there because when we are blessed and our numbers are increasing, he may decrease us and humble us by oppression and calamity and sorrow. And the same one who pours contempt on nobles may cause us to wander in a trackless waste. Things may get very, very difficult for us circumstantially. But uh, the psalmist says he lifts the needy out of their affliction. Great picture. It's a picture of being lifted to an inaccessible height. Remember the story of Rapunzel, the young lady that was up in the tower and she had to let her, wasn't that Rapunzel had to let her hair down so that her prince could climb up because it couldn't get up any other way? It's that idea, an inaccessible tower. He lifts them up, not necessarily out of their circumstances. The circumstances may be just as grim and just as difficult, but he lifts them up. He gives them a new perspective on things. He gives them protection and security. He surrounds them with his love. You see what he's saying? He's emphasizing the same thing that he said all the way through. Don't look at circumstances for your concept of God. Look to the Word. Because circumstances, uh, good times come and go, and mostly they go, I think. You just never know what's going to happen next. There are the good times and there are the bad times. But in no way do the bad times reflect upon the goodness of God. He is good. He is absolutely good. And he will work miracles on our behalf. Not necessarily taking us out of the circumstances or taking the circumstances away from us. But he'll surround us with his love and give us his grace. I came across a poem this past uh, week by uh, John uh, Maysfield. I, I had never seen before. It's called the Seaman's Prayer. Apparently it's very old. Our lives are passed away from any land in waters in the hollow of thy hand. In other words, these sailors are going out into waters that are fathoms deep. 
but they realize that the water is in the hollow of God's hand. Our ways are found by sun and moon and star, but even in thy hand our fortunes are. They navigated by, uh, by celestial navigation. They didn't have the instruments that we have today. And it was very unsure. Their course was very unsure. Our ways are found by sun and moon and star, but ever in thy hand our fortunes are. It was God who guided their ship. Thy dangers hem us in of every kind. The seas that shatter and the fogs that blind. The wind that heaps the sea, the rock, the shoal, collision and fire. These daughter, daughters of the soul. Save us from these. Yet if that may not be, grant us the manhood fitting to the sea. Isn't that great? He may not save us from, uh, from the storms. But he can give us the manhood or the womanhood that will take us through the storm. That's an evidence of his love. And that's why he says in the end, whoever is wise, does that include you and me? Do we have real wisdom? Whoever is wise, let him ponder these things. Let him not consider, as the NIV has it, let him understand the great love of the Lord. You know he loves you? Don't look at your circumstances. That's no indication of his love. Look at his word. He is the God who cannot lie. And he says he loves you. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we can only respond by saying we love you too. And we want to serve you in whatever way you see fit. Amen.